This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. All right, guys, welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast. As always, presented by our fantastic friends over at Scentlock. Uh, What sets Scentlock apart from everyone else is their carbon technology uh, to destroy your odor and give you more successful time in the field. Guys, go check out all of uh, Scentlock's lineup because I can promise you this, they have something for you. So go check out our friends over at Scentlock. We have a lineup of, of knowledge and wisdom and decently good-looking guys on the podcast. I'm not going to call them good-looking, but uh, it'll be a fun one for sure. I can tell you that. We've got Jason Roundsville, the executive director from Pope and Young. We've got Jim Willems, the past president and current board member for Pope and Young. And we've got Kip Adams, the chief conservation officer at the National Deer Association. Gentlemen, how are you boys? I'm just trying to figure out if if I'm wisdom, good-looking, or knowledge. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I told myself I wouldn't assign which one was which. Okay, all right. <laughs> Uh, hey, Dylan, Kip Adams here. Uh, I'm starting to try to figure out the same thing as well. <laughs> yeah, and Kip, welcome to the show, man, for the first time. Uh, we've had several other voices from the NDA, but this is your first go at it. Uh, I certainly appreciate the opportunity, Dylan, and uh, look forward to being in on this conversation today. Now, really what I wanted to address, and, and I know it's been addressed before, uh, we're, we're certainly not the first ones to address this, uh, but I wanted to have uh, the voices from the record book, but also the voices uh, from the conservation side of things. Uh, talk about this escaped deer uh, that was shot here in Kansas. And I, I don't really have to dive much into the story. You've you've all heard it, I'm sure. Uh, a deer was, was escaped from a high fence and got shot by a hunter um, a couple weeks later, 10 days later, however long it was. Um, and there was a big ruckus about is this new is this the new world record, and uh, and so I wanted to. We'll start with Mr. Willems. Um, we all know it's not going to be a world record, but Jim, why is it not going to be a world record? Uh, you know, a, a deer like this isn't um, 
um, accepted in our record books or the Pope and Young record books or or any of the record books that recognize wild, free ranging deer. And and the organization like Pope and Young Club, it's it's all about free range and fair chase. And the the deer farm industry uh, has become uh, uh, very um, powerful, and and they're, they they uh, for lack of a better word, in order to make a profit, they have to create bigger and bigger deer to get people to try to go after them. But one thing that uh, we have to recognize as hunters is. The, a, a deer on a deer farm is no longer really a deer. It is considered livestock in almost every state in the United States. The deer farm industry has, has lobbied to get, um, their industry under the regulation of agriculture. So now all of a sudden, what looks like a deer is really very little more than, uh, beef or a horse or a, a pig or a sheep. Um, it is a commodity raised behind a fence that really has nothing to do with, with hunting, uh, absolutely nothing to do with free range and, and nothing to do with fair chase. Now, is there a point, and, and I don't know if this is a question for, for Kip or for Jim, but is there a point in which a deer goes back underneath being a wild deer? Or if it was once on a high fence, it's always a high fence. You know, what if it was born inside of a high fence and then you shoot it seven years later? Uh, and it's been a, a, in the wild for seven years. Um, is there ever a point in which that deer goes back to being wild? I think, uh, Dylan, from a wild nature of it, if you're talking just truly about a deer, you know, that's not habituated to humans, one you know, that lives entirely off the land, there are certainly high high fenced uh, areas that you know would meet those requirements. I, I have been on some, particularly in Texas, extremely large areas that are fenced off, but you have uh, deer in that are, that are very wild in, in the behavior and uh, not habituated to humans at all. However, uh, you know, I won't speak for Jim's half, but uh, from the record book side, uh, those still would not be considered wild deer or, or eligible for those record books, simply because it's just too difficult in many cases to tease out, hey, you know, is this really fair chase inside this fence or not? So, uh, uh, the record books in many cases have just said, you know what, well, we're just not going to allow them. So we don't, you know, try to parse straws over, yes, this is, or, or no, this one doesn't actually meet those requirements. So, and I think they've done a great job over the years, you know, making it, hey, this has to be free range. It's got to be a, a truly wild deer and not something that has been raised behind a fence. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that as well. Uh, you know, one thing you have to consider is, is, was there some manipulation in the breeding of that animal? That would cause it to be abnormally large, or or just just a, a different trophy, and and that's one of the things uh, to to maintain the integrity of the record system. Um, we really can't accept anything that that was ever um, raised uh, to grow uh, the biggest or, or abnormally uh, unusual antlers. Um, that's that's really what is our biggest concern, and and. You know, we've known for years, it's only a matter of time before either an escaped deer uh, is shot and they try to slide it in as a, a fair chase, free-ranging record, or even worse, somebody actually shoots one on a game farm and, and tries to claim that it was shot somewhere else. And that's something we're always looking for and diligent about. And it's all about maintaining the integrity of the records and you, you could do a, a comparison to other sports 
you know, consider uh, baseball, for instance, the, uh, the whole steroid issue just really skewed the records and, and turned people off of baseball and steroids without a doubt was bad for baseball and, and gave the, uh, the whole sport a black eye. And we have to be really careful to not allow, um, modern technology to manipulate, uh, our records in our sport. And we have to be diligent to do what we can to, to keep the, uh, the unfair, um, trophies for lack of a better word, uh, out of the record system. Now, before I, I, I move on, um, I do need to give a quick thank you to our friends over at Season Report. Uh, Season Report is a website, um, and I would encourage everybody to use it. Um, it's SeasonReport.com. You can use code HUNTING101 to get it for $10, $10 for the entire year. And it's a way, it's one uniform platform for all states uh, to where you can look at all season dates, bag limits, restrictions, laws and everything and so if you are somebody i know mr willems hunts in tons of states um those websites can oftentimes get super clunky and hard to understand and season report uh puts it all in one uniform way to understand it um so really 10 bucks to save you from a misunderstanding and getting a a, a big fine uh is is super beneficial in my book so go check out seasonreport.com uh, because in my opinion, it's something that's not only a, a cool tool to have, but it's something that can save me from from a misunderstanding down the road. Um, Jason, how do you think uh, how do you think a hunter in this situation? And, and I, I understand this is probably a super rare situation, uh, but but how should a hunter handle this? You know that buck walks out in front of me, and I'm going to take him. <laughs> so I, I think he handled it just right. He took that, you know, it took the deer that he wanted. You know, I, I'm not sure if he if he knew that one had escaped prior to shooting it, but you know, obviously there's a buck like that comes in front of you. You're going to take it, and in this case, with it being an escaped um, high fence buck, you know, it's it's not only good that that he got that, but but there's a lot of reasons that you want to take that out of the the wild deer herd as well yeah so not only is it a trophy on the wall i mean dude got like a, I mean i don't know how much that deer would cost but twenty thousand dollar deer for free yeah and, and on that you know here this guy he's not trying to to make a claim and and say oh it should be in the record books you know he he was upfront about it and everything i've seen is that hey i shot this it was an escape thing and some people attacked him for it and and i think man i i'd have shot it I don't know anybody that would have passed that buck. Right. And so, you know, he, he's not trying to be sly about it. He's up front and, and doing just the right thing, doing what he should be doing. Now, Kip, other than obviously an awesome trophy on the wall, why is it necessary to get a deer like that out of the wild as quick as possible? The, the, the biggest thing with that just simply has to do with potential disease transmission to wild deer. And, uh, chronic wasting disease being the big one here and the the easiest way and it's very clear looking at you know how we have moved this disease across the united states well actually in canada and and a few foreign countries the fastest is through the captive servant industry And, uh, and and this is not casting blame on them you know saying they're bad people or anything the reality of it is we just don't have a good live animal test for this disease so deer are unknowingly moved on a very regular basis that end up testing positive for the disease at a later later case. So we have a deer that escape like this, get into the wild, that potentially do have the disease that could be sharing this with wild deer. Uh, one of the big dangers of CWD is 
it's it's very slow incubation period, meaning most of the deer that have this disease, we will never see the symptoms, we as humans. And that's because deer carry this for an average of you know, 18 to 24 months before they show any of the symptoms, when then they waste away, you know, it's the classic symptoms that we see. Uh, however, nearly the whole time they have the disease, they are shedding the infectious materials into the environment where other deer that come in contact with them can then contract the disease. So this particular case, this buck escapes if it would have had the disease and God, I hope it doesn't. If it did, it could be shedding those materials so that all wild deer that come in contact with this deer or you know places where this deer had urinated or, or defecated, those other deer could contract the disease. So just from that end of it, you know, it is a terrible, terrible situation for wild deer when a captive deer escapes. So we should do everything possible to remove them from the landscape immediately. And actually, to this hunter's credit, you know, this deer didn't have an ear tag. If it would have, you know, people would know immediately. But all too often, you know, those deer don't have ear tags. And, you know, to his credit, he saw the hole in the ear where that deer used to have an ear tag. So he knew immediately there's probably a good chance this did live on a farm. So um, there, there's way too many examples, Dylan, of, of these game farms, even ones that are in the herd certification programs that suddenly, you know, they receive deer from other facilities, they ship deer, then test positive for this disease, and then have unknowingly or, un, you know, sent this disease all over the place, which is literally the absolute worst thing for wild deer and for hunters who pursue wild deer. So that is the single best reason to absolutely get this deer off the landscape. Now, I have a question on, because... Everybody was commenting, man, I hope it bred a bunch of does. And I'm like, well, it was killed in the middle of September, so I doubt it bred a bunch of does. But what what are the chances that buck even breeding special deer? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, just because my dad took steroids doesn't mean I'm going to come out jacked. So that deer's offspring aren't isn't going to be pumped full of the, the protein and, and growth hormones and all that stuff that that deer was in the high fence so would that deer have even produced abnormally large deer there's certainly a chance that he would have but it's not a guarantee and uh you know the most recent research taking a look at this you know who see lots of examples of very large antler bucks who have sons with small or, or average antlers so so it's not a guarantee that his sons would have large antlers and, and what we need to remember is in captivity you know one of the reasons they can breed you know, such excessive antlers is because they can take a specific buck and match it with a specific doe. In the wild, that doesn't happen. You know, the doe is given half of the genes for their uh, their son's antlers. And we certainly can't predict which does have, you know, have the genetic traits to have bigger antlers in the wild. And even some of those bucks in the wild, it's very clear that they don't all pass those genes for large antlers on. So um, that's a common thing. You know, as hunters, we think, man, I hope he bred a bunch. And I hope there's a whole bunch of sons out there just like him. But the science just does not back that up. First of all, you're exactly right. Time of the year, it's unlikely he bred anybody. And, uh, you know, and if he did breed some, there's no guarantee at all that, uh, that those deer would have or those does would have buck fawns. And even if they did, that they would have large antlers certainly not going to have large antlers like him uh something that essentially was created in captivity now another question i have is where does it stop like we 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 see these deer in these fences and they constantly just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger is there any point like is there any kind of 
and this might be a loaded question or even a dumb question, but is there any like potential growth in a whitetail because they're producing these crazy deer? I mean, is there, is there ever a stopping point to this? Uh, you know, I sure wish that uh, that there was. We know that naturally deer can only carry a certain amount of weight on their head. And if you take a look at, you know, this deer and many of the deer that, that they're growing in captivity, you know, those largest ones, those bucks can't even hold their heads up. You know, if you look at some of the record, look at a record book elk, you know, a free ranging elk, you know, that's in, uh, you know, the high three, 300s, 375 or whatever. Um, they are raising deer and cat whitetails in captivity to have more than that. So, you know, a record book elk is a truly majestic animal. I mean, it's a huge animal. Whitetails are not supposed to have that many inches of antler on their head. You know, they don't have the, the musculature. They don't have the bone structure to properly carry that much around. So, you know, some find these deer in captivity just be fantastic that they're growing, you know, 300, 400 inches of antlers. I find it quite grotesque, actually. And I'm a huge deer nut. So uh, you know, you're not going to find anybody crazier about deer than me. But the fact that, you know, they are unnaturally growing antlers like this on whitetails, I, I find it pretty disgraceful to whitetails that I that I consider an extremely noble animal. And, uh, you know, the fact that an animal can't even hold its head up from the weight that's there, I don't think that's something that should be celebrated. Right. Now, Jim, um, from a record standpoint, is there any kind of, is there any kind of, um, and this obviously gets down a wormhole and and really hard to ever even tell but you know say that deer does breed and it does produce incredible genes is there i mean would that deer then be accepted in the books well it it, it probably would be because it would be um a, a free-ranging uh deer that was born in the wild not in captivity and and, and that's, still had to grow in the wild. Yeah, but but the problem is, how do you police that? That's that's just that is literally right. a nightmare of of people that that are in charge of the record system, the records program. Um, so I have to assume just just from my experience, I'm not a, a biologist like Kip, but you have to assume that, like he said, uh, it's probably not going to produce abnormally large offspring. And within a few generations, uh, just from my limited knowledge, I would think that that all of those abnormalities and, and, you know, grotesquely large antlers would probably go away in the wild. Uh, I don't know how, how it's going to work with the first generation or the second. Um, but, you know, what what do you do about it? You You trust the hunter and you do some research and you hope that it was taken legally and it was a wild animal. And uh, up to this point, I think we've been really fortunate that we haven't uh, had to deal with with that type of situation. You know, we, we are seeing bigger and bigger animals in the wild, uh, but 90% of that has to do with we're letting them get older, which creates right. uh, larger antlers, you know. And, and, you know, people either love or hate trophy hunting, uh, but trophy hunting really is just looking for uh, the biggest, most mature, oldest animal that you can find on any given hunt. And that could be something with really big antlers, or it may not be. It may just be an old deer. But, uh, yeah, how how are we going to deal with this in the future? The the best way to deal with it, you know, ideal world is we would outlaw deer farming. Uh, it's it's uh, it's like a drug to certain people, and and it really has nothing to do with hunting or, you know, certainly not fair chase. and 
And we have to remember that uh, even even today with all of the, the BS you see going around with the anti-hunting and whatnot, uh, 80% of Americans approve of fair chase hunting as long as the meat is us- utilized and it's done fairly. And then you start talking about high fence hunting and that goes down to 25%. So it's just like the analogy with, with baseball and steroids. You know, it's just because they call it hunting doesn't mean that's what it is. And at some point, we have to come out and say, enough is enough. We have to make it socially unacceptable for this practice to, to keep taking place. And, and I don't know how to do that, but that, that is probably one of the best things that would happen to wild, wild game and fair chase hunting. Now, you mentioned um, that there are, I mean, we keep seeing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger animals being harvested. Jason, how many new world records were announced? We had 10 new world records at the convention in July, and that's over the last two years. Which is insane. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. Crazy. What what do we what do we constitute that to? Um, you know, just just the the North American wild model of wildlife conservation is working at a, an extreme level. I mean you know, we're growing the animals to that size. The management is letting them get there and the hunters are, are finding them. You know, the people that are out there and, you know, you've got some guys that they just kind of get lucky and, and that happens too. And then you've got guys like Jim that they're truly out there chasing the giants. You know, there's guys out there that are, are specifically looking for those, those huge, I mean, you're all looking for the big buck, but some guys are only taking that that top one percent and that that true yeah. trophy class. No, I mean you you see guys like Alan Bolin who was on the show not too long ago, and we we talked about this and and uh, you know he's he's he passes up deer that anybody would would sh- I mean not just deer but elk and and sheep and he passes these animals up and they're magnificent. But he he says that he's like you know I'm I might pass a, a one hundred four coos deer looking for a one hundred seven. Or I might pass a 105 looking for a 108, like you know, and and that's just it's a it's a complete different mindset. Um, but I also I'm interested to know what you boys think uh, because obviously our conservation is working on these animals, but I also think that it has something to do with with COVID and and having guys had more time in the field and more guys had time in the field, uh, so we just had more hunters and we had more hunting going on, so. In turn, we had more opportunities at New World Records. You know, that's part of it. It's um, the more time you get out there, the the better your chances. I mean, uh, you know, just going back to Jim's, I, I think he hunted one deer for, I think it was 28 days that he put in for one specific buck. And, and uh, so that's part of it. And, you know, people are good. The equipment's good. We've got good opportunities you know fish and game departments are working to make sure we have the opportunities out there and it's 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 all culminating in in you know more world records being taken right now than than what i could have ever imagined in a two-year period yeah now go ahead yeah jason thanks thanks (laughs) thanks for bringing that up that that deer i killed a couple of years ago it was actually 24 days i hunted 23 days straight and then took a day off and then on the 24th day I got him. Uh, but, you know, uh, there are more people trying to hunt bigger trophies. And, and uh, you know, trophy hunting 
to the lay person today is is it's like the assault weapon. You know, it's a word that never really, it, it doesn't mean what you think it means. You know, people think trophy hunting means you're just hunting for big antlers and you don't care about anything else. And that's literally not, that has nothing to do with it. We're hunting for the experience. And the the harder you try to get one particular animal, for one thing, the longer you hunt, the more experience you get, the more you learn, the more you see. And, uh, you know, during those 24 days when I was hunting that one specific deer, which by the way, I had never even seen before. Uh, I had a, a nighttime trail picture of him, but never laid eyes on him until that 24th day. Um, the experience you get in, in the wild is just unbelievable. The things you see and, and, uh, the emotions that, that you get, uh, trying to make that work. Um, it's just, it's just an unbelievable experience. It's, you know, there is really an, uh, almost an intimacy that you get in that next level of commitment and that more time that you spend out there because you just see things when you're out there for a longer period of time that you just don't get if if you have two or three days or you know in some cases if if nothing wrong with with hunting with a firearm but you know if you're out there okay you see a, a deer at 100 yards it's you know, safety's off, the deer's down and, and the hunt's over. Well, if you're out there for the kind of time that we're talking about here, you're seeing things and experiencing things that, that you just don't get in the click boom stage of a hunt. And that that was my appeal to archery um, because rifle hunting is where I got my start. And, you know, I remember a, as a kid thinking, well, that was cool, but it, it happened awfully quick. You know, it, it was... I don't want to say it was easy, but it was easy. Um, you know, you, you sit there and wait, and when they step out, you shoot them, and, and it's over. And you never get that you never get that feeling of, oh, they're hung up at, at 42 yards behind a tree, and I can't get a shot. And, and you know, I, I remember, like, coming home and telling my, my, my wife, like, well, yeah, I had, a, I had my deer at 18 yards, but I just couldn't get a shot at him. And she just couldn't understand that. And I'm like, well, you know, it's behind a tree, or I, it, I never uh, – it was always – quarter and sh- or facing straight towards me i mean all these things and and that kind of chess match is what drew me to archery and then uh thanks to jim willems um that's what drew me to traditional archery um and jim i haven't got to have you back on the show since i did harvest my first deer with a recurve um and that's kind of been that process has kind of been documented through the podcast and so um if you're listening to this and you've kind of been following along with my traditional journey, uh, I owe a lot of that to Jim Willems. So, so thank you so much, Jim, for, for not only teaching me, but, but getting me hooked on that, that way of archery. Well, that, that was an absolute pleasure working through that with you. I, I do wish you would have, uh, uh, pick somebody a little more knowledgeable to help you through <laughs> that. And I know you got advice from a whole lot of other people, but it's always exciting to get somebody started on something new and something you're passionate about. So, yes, you, you planted something in me that, uh, I doubt my wife would have ever wished was planted because now I, I go out and shoot every day and, <laughs> and, uh, and spend too much time tinkering with it. And, and it's just a, it's a, a fun way to hunt, man. That's for sure. Now, Jim, uh, and I don't know if, if Kip has anything to add in here. Uh, you mentioned something along the lines of this deer and him being able to keep it. Um, walk me through that a little bit. Well, it's the uh, the captive servant industry in Kansas is ruled by the agriculture 
um, Department of Agriculture. And because of that, this, you know, near as I can tell, this deer is no different than uh, a heifer that got loose. And, you know, you can't shoot a heifer and keep it when it belongs to somebody else because Kansas is a free-range state. So it'll be really interesting to see the legalities of this. Uh, it's great that the guy shot it, but um, that deer actually was owned by somebody. And it's not a wild deer. Uh, I, I don't know that you'd even be required to put your license on it because it was literally a piece of livestock. So I'm interested to follow this and and see what happens with it. But I would assume that the original owner is going to want that rack back because it it has value and it has considerable value. So, uh, you know, he could probably even ask for the meat back under, under the laws. So uh, that's one of the things that has me intrigued is what is going to happen uh, what's the end result of this? And and I think everybody needs to be aware of of the legal issues that could be could be out there. Does anybody know if he tagged that buck? There was a tag on it in the pictures. I mean, if he tagged it, then it would be. I mean, because you couldn't not tag. You shoot a buck like that. You can't. I don't know that you could assume that it was a, an escaped. Even if you thought so, you, I mean, I don't know. Seems like you yeah, still states put a tag look at on that it. a little differently. If it, yeah, I think you're right, Jason. You, you have to tag it because he didn't know that it was, given the size of the antlers, there's a good chance that it came from a fence, but he didn't know that. So legally, he would have to tag it. Um, states can look at that a little differently, as Jim alluded to on, is that still livestock? Uh, some states still classify captive deer as wildlife. Some don't, as Jim said. Some, uh, actually many now, do classify them as livestock. So it will be interesting. But the point that I'm going to take on this is where Jim said he may even have to give the meat back. Um, that is a big sticking point, you know, with a lot of this because there are a lot of drugs used in deer on captive facilities that either aren't labeled for use on deer, so they're being used off label, or they are being used uh, in the withdrawal times for those medicines or those drugs before human consumption um, are not being met. So hunting is so uh, popular today and it is so approved by the hunting public or the hunters, I'm sorry, the uh, the general public, in large part because of the use of that meat. However, as soon as you can't eat it anymore, that approval drops tremendously. And that's the case for a lot of these deer behind fences. A lot of those deer cannot be eaten, or at least they can't be eaten safely because of a lot of those drugs that are being used. Uh, that's that's not advertised you know, by those facility owners or the people going in to shoot animals on there. And, and I'm not going to call them going and hunt animals there. In many cases, that's not hunting at all. It is simply shooting. Uh, in a lot of cases, those deer cannot be eaten simply because of the, the drugs that are used, which raises another factor for all of those deer that escape, you know, if they were treated with stuff that makes it not not safe for, uh, for a hunter to consume. And, you know, obviously this was a huge buck, so it got a lot of publicity. What if it wasn't a big buck? What if it was a doe, you know, or a small buck that was, you know, didn't realize it came from a facility, you know, that that may have been treated with drugs that made it unfit for human consumption, you know, this hunter may have eaten. So that's a whole nother uh, issue relative to captive facilities here that, uh, you know, that it doesn't make the, the headlines in a lot of cases, but it's absolutely a huge concern for hunters and for wild deer that we need to be aware of. Now. I don't know if there's a, a right answer to this, but if the deer is taken from him, does he get his tag back? I think that he, he absolutely it, I mean, would. Yeah, I know many cases where, where wildlife officers have reissued a tag for situations, you know, that 
maybe not this exact situation, but for others where they had legally tagged an animal and then for whatever reason, you know, was unfit for consumption or some states don't make any guarantees to the quality of the, the meat. Hey, if you shoot a deer that tends to be deer, elk, moose or whatever, that's, you know, unfit for consumption, you know, so be it. Um, however, some will, will actually will reissue a tag, particularly for whitetails and, you know, in areas where their deer are, are abundant or overabundant. So I don't know exactly what uh, what Kansas the law enforcement officer would do to this, but uh, if if he can't keep it, I would almost guarantee you that they would issue him another tag, uh, given that he did everything right uh, so that he could continue hunting and, uh, and try to, to shoot another deer to, to feed his family. Now, based off of your answer, Jim, uh, in the first place on this keeping it, uh, does that mean it basically comes down to whether the high fence says we want that back or does this does the state decide that? Um, because it is, like you said, the high fence is property. So does it come down to them saying, hey, we want our deer or does the state just say you're giving it back? Well, that's that's why I think this is so interesting and I want to keep track of it to see what happens with it. Um, you would think that it they have record of the deer being their property they could ask for it and you know not even get the state involved and if the, the guy doesn't want to give it to them then certainly they could take legal action to get it back now would they do that and and draw the unwanted attention to, to what's going on there um i don't know but you know if if i was this person that that shot that deer and uh you know, to his credit, he had an exciting hunt there for a little while where he thought he really had something great. I would personally, I would be in touch with that, that game farm and, and offer it back to him in exchange for uh, a letter to ensure that they, they never take legal action for taking, taking their property. Because like I said, Kansas is a free range state. You can't just go out and shoot somebody's cow or, or a horse or pig or sheep because it's on your property. Um, you do that and, you, and you're liable for that animal. And I don't think a deer would be a whole lot different other than, you know, in a, in a if it came down to a court of law, you, I'm sure people uh, would have to wonder, you know, it looked like a deer. It seemed like a deer. He probably didn't intend to do anything illegal, but I, I'd be a little bit concerned about being in possession of this animal. Yeah, I had one time where I was hunting and uh, and somebody and I don't, I don't know where it came from because I was I was miles from anybody's house, but a giant 400 pound pig comes walking through there and I was like, man, I really want to shoot you. <laughs> you would be delicious. Um, <laughs> but I couldn't, obviously. Um, now, I've got one more um, kind of. um rabbit hole to go down but before i do i need to give a thank you to our friends over at uh minus 33 merino wool um i'm a huge fan of merino wool i know jim is um and minus 33 just does it really well uh so go check out minus 33 they have a, a full line of of merino wool from early season to late season uh, i pretty much wear it daily um and then obviously when it gets into late season i move into heavier stuff but uh, go check out minus 33 merino wool because it is a very high quality merino now uh kip mentioned texas and that's something that i love to hunt in texas um is there any kind of because like kip mentioned some of those some of those ranches in texas are are hundred thousand acres and they're in a fence but the deer aren't raised they're not farmed 
Um, obviously they have fences for other reasons and these deer have literally never seen a fence before. Um, so is there any kind of, does that play a factor in anything, Jim? Well, we, you know, we had this discussion 20 or 30 years ago when, when high fence hunting, um, became popular. And, and like you said, there are, there are ranches in Texas that are huge. And obviously the, the hunting within those fences is, is pretty much fair chase. Uh, but as an organization like Pope and Young Club or Boone and Crockett, we kind of work together on this. What what is the what is the limit? You know, is it five thousand acres? Is it ten? Is it a hundred thousand? And you really, what we we really decided on is, you know, what's the purpose of the fence in the first place? And the purpose of the fence is to keep the the animals from within that fence of getting away. And, and if you have a high fence where the animals cannot leave the property or, or the intention is to keep them from leaving the property, it really doesn't matter how big the property is. You, you can still have a good hunt there, but it is no longer considered fair chase simply due to the fact that you have a barrier to keep the animals from leaving your property. What about these uh, low fences in Texas where, where deer could jump it? Um... Is there like a, a height restriction on fences? I'm just curious. I, I don't know that we've really put anything in writing um, as far as the height of the fence. Uh, so, so I don't know that that's an issue. But it, it really comes back to is there a fence designed to keep the animal on the property? And that's, that's really all it amounts to. If the fence is low enough that the deer can get through it or if there's openings or whatever, then it's, it's no longer a high fence operation. And it, if the deer can leave the property, then it is a free ranging deer. Gotcha. I was just curious because, you know, I've, I've, I've been to places in Texas where once you go inside the fence, there's, you know, there's roads and, and there's, it's almost like a, you don't even know you went to a fence because you're still on gravel roads and, and you can drive for miles and miles on these gravel roads and, 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 you know, deer inside that fence have never even seen a fence. And, uh, and so you just, and, and again, it's not some kind of farming operation. They're not growing deer. They're not, they're not, but, but there's a fence. And so I was just curious to know if there was any kind of defining factor there. Yeah. One thing to add, Dylan, is just from a terminology standpoint, different states, you know, refer to, to fences, you know, in different ways. And, um, in Texas, especially, you know, Texas is like 97% private. And if you are in Texas, almost all uh, huntable land is considered either as broken one of two categories, high fenced or low fenced. You know, and many people think of low fences. Okay. That's lower. You know, it's, is it still welded wires? It's still something that holds deer at least to a Texan or, or somebody hunting in Texas. Uh, a low fence situation can literally be a three or four uh, bob wire uh, cattle fence. So they have their high fences, which are absolutely made to restrict deer movement. And that's what Jim is saying, you know, is not eligible for the record books. But if somebody refers to something as being low fenced, that might be welded wire that's meant to keep hogs out. It might be welded wire that's meant to keep dogs out. Or that literally could just be a three or four barbed wire fence meant to keep cows in. So, uh, you know, uh, if you're outside of Texas and you hear that low fenced, um, just know that that's that's not a a deer restricting thing at all. It literally could be referencing you know just uh, keeping cattle in. I got you. No, I was just curious, you know, um, because Texas is is an incredible an incredible 
opportunity to hunt um so game rich and such a fun place to hunt really and uh you know you talk to guys i know me and jason have talked to to ben solaris um out of australia and he's hunted however many different countries i don't i don't remember jason and we're talking to him about his favorite place to hunt and he's like man i love south texas and we're like really you get to hunt you know you've hunted argentina and and all these cool countries and, and you're saying south texas um but majority of the time like you said kip if you're hunting in texas you're either in a low fence or a high fence so um i just wanted to kind of shed some light on that what uh what do you boys got planned uh for this fall any big plans i know jim you're on a hunt right now you you took the time to come on a on a podcast while you're on a hunt yeah dylan i'm I'm in southwest colorado hunting black bears um I, I really enjoy hunting bears. It, I don't kill very many of them anymore because, you know, um, what are you going to do with another bear rug? But I'm, I'm determined to try to kill at least one more really big bear. That's a good problem to have, isn't it? it Me and Jason don't have those kind of problems. I, yeah. I, I think Jim, Jim's probably all, always going to be determined to kill one more big something. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you're right. The, the sad thing is yeah. I'll, I'll never kill a bigger whitetail than what I have, but. Everything else is pretty much up in the air. I can always find something bigger. Um, How big was that white bell, Jim? Uh, one ninety-one and three-eighths, typical. God, yeah. That's see, that's a nice thing about us, Dylan. Is is we're shooting these little ones. It's easier for us to to better them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ceiling's pretty low for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I could dang near step over it. It's knee high, but J- Jim's got a different ceiling. So uh, I'm I'm in the middle of three different hunts in in Colorado. Um, I had an antelope tag, then I had a mule deer tag, and now I have a bear tag. And I killed an antelope. It only took me 12 days. It was the toughest antelope hunt I've ever had in my life. Uh, but I had a great time. Just the the things I saw and the experiences, and uh, got some great stories to tell there. But the the deer and the black bear they're kind of kicking my butt this year. Um, I I done with the deer hunt i didn't get a mule deer and and the black bear hunt's not looking great i could stumble onto a big one here in the next two days but uh chances are i'm gonna go home with with the tag still in my pocket now have you seen a lot of bears or or no bear i mean are you are you seeing a lot of small ones or or just no bears well i typically don't see a lot of bears unless you just find that perfect spot but what i do is uh, i'm looking for sign looking for the the feed areas and uh you know, this is my third day to hunt, and I've seen three bears, all small ones. Um, but I know where a lot of them are. I just, I just really don't go into the brush and go after them until I find a big track that I want to try to circle in on. And uh, I found a big track yesterday midday, a little over five miles from the road, and uh, you know, spent the day trying to find him. And as uh, as the day's getting longer, I'm thinking, do I really want to? F- kill a 400 pound bear five miles from the road and the answer is yeah i probably would <laughs> I, I wouldn't really That's, enjoy it that, yeah that that wasn't much of a question for those of us that, you know <laughs> yeah Jason, absolutely you a couple antelope this year i did i i had a, a good hunt in wyoming uh with our, our friends at bear track and uh, tj and his crew took good care of me and and i saw a couple of nice bucks and then uh panicked and shot a small one and uh <laughs> and, you know hey it happens and then, and then i went to idaho and uh it's the first first time i've ever really done that it went to a new area not a lot of antelope 
but very low density, but it was neat area and uh, actually connected with the, you know, it wasn't a monster, but it was the nicest buck that in, in having cameras out for about six weeks on several different water holes, it was the nice buck, nicest buck I'd seen on any of my cameras. And that was completely do it yourself too, which makes it all the better. It was, it was really cool. And, you know, I, I got in there and, and put some cameras up early, went back and checked them. And, and I wasn't seeing a lot of antelope on, on any of the, it's not like, Oh, there's 30 different ones coming each day. It was, I was getting like one camera or one, one picture a week. Um, and you know, some of it was, I'd, had problems with some of the beef cows, you know, messing with cameras and stuff, but it was a neat hunt and, uh, and, and really, I'm, I'm really proud of that one, whether or not it actually gets into the books. I'm still really proud of that animal. You know, sometimes they just mean more, no matter how big they are. Yeah. Well, and, and let's, I, uh, let's be honest, there's, there's areas where you're just not going to be able to kill a really big animal. They just simply aren't there. But if you can do what you did, identify the, you know, one of the top ones in the, in the area, even though he's not huge, he's still one of the biggest ones there. And now that is, that is a, a real trophy hunt because you targeted the biggest one you could find and you got him. So man, that's what it's really all about. Yeah. It's been, you know, for me, it's been an interesting year because I've had such a range of, you know, Dylan and I get to talk to people who are taking these monsters all the time, you know, and, you know, guys that are around just, just, amazing amazing animals and then i look at it and i grew up just a little bit different i mean we were there to fill the freezer and so that was kind of the first thing is is at the end of the year you wanted to be a yep not a you know did you get your buck yep and so for me it's it's been a little bit of a a mental dance to get into the you know more of a a trophy hunting mindset you know i went to wyoming and i'm like hey i'm going to get my pope and young buck here for my antelope and then all of a sudden you know i saw this buck and and for two days i didn't have anything really come in it was windy and they were kind of a little skittish and so you start getting a little bit nervous and then i had a buck come in that i knew i wasn't going to take and then it's amazing if if you take a you know medium-sized antelope and put your 10 power Swarovskis on him at 19 yards, you know, all of a sudden he just looks bigger. <laughs> and, and so I, I wound up, I, I shot this buck and, and he didn't go very far. And, and I walked, I, you know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, Phil judged him as not a taker. And, and then I looked at him and I said, yo, maybe he's, he's a little bit better than I think. Maybe he's got more mass than I realized. And cause they say on antelope, sometimes if they, if they have a lot of mass, it makes, makes them look smaller and so then i got up to him i'm like nope i feel judged him 100 percent correctly the first time <laughs> but it was it was still neat but you know on that one here i was on a hunt you know in wyoming and and that one i was disappointed in myself for not taking a bigger antelope because the the realistically the chance would have been there and then in idaho it was kind of the opposite. It's like, wow, you know, I went in here and they're probably both similar sized antelope, but that one I was really proud of because I got a very good specimen for, for that area. And I mean, he was missing teeth. I mean, he was old. He probably wasn't going to make it another year. So it was kind of a really neat situation. And then I went elk hunting and kind of the same thing. I, I passed some smaller bulls and and then I wound up 
you know, eating tag soup on that one. And, and I'm okay with that. So it's, I've really ran through a range of emotions this year on, on the hunting I've gotten to do so far. So, you know, and to further Jim's point, I always tell people, know your trophy, you know, whatever area you're hunting in, you know, I go back and hunt in Arkansas with my dad every year and, and, uh, I'm not going to kill a giant deer, but we sure as heck can find a big deer for that area. Um, and so, you know, one deer on my wall in my, in my basement, it's like a hundred and 15 inch deer and uh and people are like why'd you why is that one mounted and i'm like well dude that's that's from arkansas that's a, a giant in arkansas uh well not a giant but that's a big deer in arkansas and uh you just have to know you just have to know where you're hunting and, and what kind of animals that area is going to produce and and accept that hey I'm, i might shoot a big animal for this area that's not going to be big for the rest of the country um so you just got to understand that Kip, what do you got planned this this fall, man? Oh, uh, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm in northern Pennsylvania, so I travel so much for work during the year that I really enjoy being home. Come hunting season, uh, I have two young kids, uh, a 12 year old son and and a 15 year old daughter that that both just love to hunt. So uh, I I like being here and and hunting with them every day that I can. Uh, our archery season opens this weekend, so spirits are high in Pennsylvania. But uh, I took my son to Maryland two weeks ago to 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 bow hunt. Uh, their season opens before ours, so uh, that was a nice dad and, and son getaway. Um, I will do most of my hunting here, but I'm going to take my daughter to North Dakota uh, in early November. So uh, that'll be a nice trip. So uh, going to be going to be a good fall for sure. So how was your hunt uh, with your son? Did you guys harvest anything? He did. He shot two does while we were there. So. Uh, fantastic way to start the season um great great Absolutely. hunt uh, we didn't see a lot of deer but uh which uh of course even if you don't get anything you know seeing deer is always fun but uh he uh he was able to to get two does uh two great shots so um it was a uh, nice short blood trails is always a benefit and uh so uh yeah we had a, we had an outstanding time uh we went down on a friday and uh he was actually had off school, which uh, took away from it just a little bit. Um, he didn't miss school, which was good from from my end. But uh, he uh, he was looking forward uh, to actually missing school to get to go hunting, which uh, apparently at that age uh, just adds a little bit of excitement to the hunt. But uh, we had we had a great time, Dylan. Uh, absolutely fantastic time. Yeah, I can't wait for my son to be old enough to go out and go hunting with me. I. Uh, I look forward to that immensely. He's always out checking cameras with me and, and, uh, you know, trimming lanes and we have a blast except for this last weekend when, uh, he brought a bunch of, uh, poison ivy home. Uh, but <laughs> that happens, I guess. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. I have one last question for each of you, Jason. My question is a little bit different than the Pope and young question that, that we ask. Um, but Fred Bear was big on his field notes and uh, and big on on taking notes and and learning how to be a better sportsman and a better hunter. And so, what's one field note that you guys can share with me? Uh, one quick tip that I can put in my back pocket and make myself a better sportsman. With we'll start with uh, Jim. Okay. Well, usually I'm prepared for this sort of thing, but now I'm not. So let's let's just say um, uh, work on your tracking skills. Um, I I've helped a couple of people track wounded mule deer recently. And, and I, I realized that I, I've always known I'm pretty good at it because the, the animals seldom get away from me, but I'm actually better when it's somebody else's deer because you don't have the, uh, the emotional, um, baggage that goes along with it. But, uh, 
you know, practice your, your tracking skills. Even when you see the animal go down, don't, you know, go back and start from the beginning and, and, uh, look at, at where the foot placement is and where you see blood and get used to, uh, how far apart the feet are when you're looking for tracks and, and how, how far apart the blood is when that, that foot hits the ground. So, uh, I, I think that's one thing that everybody needs to work on is, is tracking, uh, tracking a live animal and tracking a wounded animal. You know, I, uh, I went out and helped my buddy, uh, believe it or not, Jim, I, I've already got somebody else hooked on hunting with a recurve and, uh, they were at my house and, and, uh, doing some work around my house for me. And, and I was out shooting my recurve and he just showed a lot of interest in it. And so we went out and bought him a recurve and, and got him some arrows and, and, uh, he called me the other day and he said, he was out checking trail cameras. He said, I have my bow with me just in case. And, uh, he said, I saw a bedded buck. And so I crawled up to this deer and got within 13 yards of him, ended up shooting him like seven yards, I think. And, uh, just a really cool story. And, and, um, so he calls me and says, can you come help me track it? And so I, me and my son go out there and cause again, I want to get him as, as much involved as I can. And we didn't find a drop of blood anywhere. No, well, I'm sorry. Right after the shot, we found one drop of blood and he said, dude, I, I saw the arrow go in. Like, I know it was a great shot. And so we keep looking and we were in like armpit deep stuff trying to look for this deer. And, and sure enough, it was just as, as dead as could be. And, uh, we ended up, we couldn't find blood probably cause it was so high. I mean, the grass was just so high. It was just so thick and hard to find blood but we ended up tracking him because my friend said well when i saw him run off he, he dropped over the ridge but i kept seeing milkweed come up um and so we were tracking this deer based off of well he had to run this way because there's a lot of milkweed over here not over there and so we that's how we ended up tracking the deer and we found it yeah that's that's the end of a great story man you just have to stay persistent if you think it was a good hit if the guy thinks it was a good hit you have to assume it was, even if you're not finding much blood. Uh, another thing to consider this early in the year is the, the deer have so much fat on them. You know, sometimes they don't bleed as well. And you, you just have to, like I said, learn how to track their footprints and maybe not rely so much on blood. Yeah. Jason, what's a tip you got for us? Yeah, just real quick. I'll, I'll give my tip, but I've had it. Um, I've had a couple of elk that, that, I, I mean, I literally put a good arrow in them, watch them go lay down, and they're not one speck of blood between where they got hit and where they laid down. So it's, it like Jim was saying, it's you have to do the tracking, and and sometimes it's, you know, like like if for deer, for example, you know, when you're walking through the forest, we're six feet tall. It's a different view when you're down lower, and so get get down a little lower and just look and just say, okay. Um, we have to do that often where you're, where you look and, and a lot of times they'll run in lanes and it's like, okay, if you're a deer, obviously you're not going to run right into the trees. So you're either going to go left or right. Well, that way is, and, and you just kind of get down and look from their perspective and then almost, you know, track that deer with the tracks and where you think it might go and then verify with, with the, when you do find the occasional blood. So, um, you know, my, the the thing I would tell people, my tip for this year is that you're not going to get it done on the couch. If you want to, if you want to go out and be successful and hunt and have fun, you got to get off the couch and you actually have to go hunt. Very good. 
Yeah, we talked to uh we talked to um Brian Butcher on his buck and that was a really a funny story, a, a funny just kind of commentary between him and his buddies because they had all been out trimming lanes and uh they other two guys had something different to do and and uh so it was really comical to hear that he got to shoot it and they were out at like a softball tournament like a gala or something. Yeah, it was a, a barbecue and a dinner party. Yeah. Yeah, so really comical. But Kip, what kind of what kind of tip do you got for us? Well, I'm certainly a, a huge Fred Bear fan, and uh, like many first bow I ever shot as a, as a little boy was uh, was a bear. Um, uh, being a biologist, you know, I'm always interested in uh, you know how deer see, how they hear, how they navigate the landscape. So what I'm doing, this comes actually from a Fred Bear uh, uh, note uh, early in uh, in his career making bows. At one point, he actually had a bunch of different colored bows made. And now, you know, we're putting colors into different bows. And uh, I saw notes, gosh, this is probably 20 years ago now, where uh, he had reviewed these different bows and then uh, left a note for the, the workers there that uh, he didn't like the blue. So to take the blue out uh, of the next round that they made. And uh, my tip is that if you take a look at how deer see, deer see essentially the, the red-green colorblind, basically. Uh, but they see really well into the blue spectrum. So anything that's blue or has hues of blue, um, deer see far, far better. So, you know, bow hunters, you know, we're often wearing camo, but there are some seasons that overlap, you know, with some muzzleloader or firearm seasons where you have to wear orange in some cases, at least while you're moving. And, you know, a lot of hunters don't want to wear that orange. Well, from a deer's end, they're not seeing that orange. However, I can't tell you how many people I've seen hunting wearing blue jeans or, or something that is blue. Deer see that really, really well. So I've always kidded folks and said, hey, Fred Bear was so far ahead of his time on a lot of things. And even with deer vision, even before we knew what deer could see, Fred was already saying blue is not good. Take, the, take that uh, off, his, off his product. So, uh, so my tip is be aware you know, of how deer see. They see blue really well. They see yellow really well. Everything else is pretty modeled to them. So uh, be aware of that, that even if... You know, not that you're wearing blue or yellow in many cases when you're hunting, but a lot of people, when they're scouting, they'll get a little lax on some of what they're wearing. So uh, you'll see those colors extremely well. So uh, be sure to leave those home when, when you head a field. A lot of guys also have blue or yellow accents on their bows, and uh, that's going to stick out to those deer. Exactly. Great tips, gentlemen. I appreciate your time coming on. I appreciate you guys um, shedding some light on this on this topic and this situation of the, of the deer getting out of a high fence guys, good luck this fall. And as always, if you guys do harvest the deer, I would absolutely love to see it. Send it over to me at the hunting one one podcast at gmail.com. If you have any tips of your own, if you have any field notes you'd like to share, send them over to the hunting one one podcast at gmail.com. And we might discuss them in a podcast sometimes guys. Thanks for listening. You guys have a great week. Thanks. Thanks Dylan. Dylan.